case line is going with the flow. A cycling scandal with a British accent. And we jump in on the Friday group ride to remember how it all started. The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. Fat Cyclist, one of two dot coms that prop up the Pace Line. <laughs> and Fatty is here, fresh off an FTP test, which we're going to talk about in a few minutes. Fatty, how are you? 289, baby. 289. That sounds impressive. We're going to get into the... Uh, we're going to get into the details of that in a few minutes here on the Pace Line. The other.com is, of course, Red Kite Prayer, and it is where you will find our Patrick Brady, who has uh, gone nationwide on us, Fatty. Patrick, basking in the glow of flow and a very fine article on the pages of Bicycling Magazine. Welcome, Patrick, to our little show we call the Pace Line. <laughs> I think I know this place. Yeah, it's, it's a comfy place. Can, uh, and, uh, can we cl- cut in the delusions of grandeur uh, uh, thing from what is it, the uh, well? Never mind. <laughs> I think I just ruined something. I I had a joke that just completely fell apart because of old man brain. Oh, okay. <laughs> are you are you at all delusional right now, Patrick? Are you uh, feeling on top of the world? Uh, I'm I'm a little sunburned, um, if that counts. Yeah, you. You were up with uh, Yuri Hoswald's gang, weren't you, over the weekend? Yeah, Bantam Classic, where I double-flatted. Nice work. Um, yeah, and got scored another DNF. Um, <laughs> okay. My, my, what, third of the season. God. Yeah, I, I've been on the same track. But, you know, as you say, you got to go with the flow. Uh, and we're going to get into enough. that. We're going to get into your... Your flow state. A very fascinating article, by the way, folks, in Bicycling Magazine about flow. I think you'll be intrigued about how it affects all of us. But first, let's turn back the uh, page or the focus to Fatty. Because, Fatty, uh, this week I saw that you were posting and talking about your coveted FTP test. A very important thing to do uh, for any endurance athlete is to figure out where they are fitness-wise. And last week, I told you that I was doing my, or I had done my my FTP test and where about I was, mm-hmm. and you and I did different tests. You do the 20-minute test, I did the 2 by 8 minute test. So tell me, how did your, you were nervous about this too, about taking your FTP test, like almost like you're going into the doctor's office or something. No, not how so much. How did it all turn out? Not so much as going to the doctor's office as starting a race. I mean, I had the same kind of pre-race butterflies where this is something that's important to me. How am I going to do? Am I going to survive? Am I going to go out too hard and wind up failing, as in literally having to stop before it ends? The 20-minute the uh, FTP, which is Functional Threshold Power Test, the Trainer Road has, is an incredibly intense test. You know, How hard can you make yourself go for 20 minutes? Um, and yeah, so it, it was... It was rough, and it was very difficult, and in the end, I was incredibly proud to have jumped from an FTP of 269 to 289. Um, It's been a couple of months since I have tested myself, and that explains kind of the largest jump. The last time I should have done a test, um, I didn't because of sickness. Um, So it's to have that large, a 20-watt jump, is pretty gratifying. It is, and what what do you credit that to? Well, I've been working hard, and I'm, I know I sound like a broken record for Trainer Road, but I'm a true believer, and I've been doing the uh, workouts. I have been 
um, doing uh, a lot of interval training. I've been working hard. I have this dream of finishing Leadville in under eight hours this year. And uh, while I still have not managed to wrangle my weight, uh, I definitely am. I, I'm, I have more power than I've ever had before in my life at yeah, the age of 50. Right. And, and one of the amazing things is a few, I don't know, three or four shows ago, we talked with you and you were worried about the amount of training you were because of life's, you know, stumbles yeah. and tumbles. You were getting a little worried about how much training you were getting in, whether it was effective or not. And somehow you've you overcome that or you allowed your training to still be effective. Well, I don't know how I'm going to be doing in, as far as endurance goes. And like I mentioned a second ago, weight has been a huge issue for me this time. I mean, weight's always been a problem for me, but I am about 15 pounds heavier than I want to be. And having, you know, having 20 watts more power doesn't matter if my watts per kilogram uh, is lower, which is, you know, being 15 pounds heavier, you know, the, the greater wattage isn't going to really buy me all that much when I'm trying to do a 3000 foot climb at 10,000 feet. But well, uh, I still have time. A lot of people, I still have time. Right, a lot of people might be surprised that, you know, I would think that I'm a little heavy, but I am. And here's what I've been doing. Here's something you might want to try. Um, it's called... Um, Don't eat eating Well, so much. I call it, yeah, train low. What you do is you get up in the morning and do an hour or an hour and a half mm -hmm. at aerobic level uh, on a cup of coffee. That's a great idea. And, yeah, do not eat. Go out and ride or get on your trainer and mm -hmm. just do an hour, an hour and a half deplete with, with your glycogen stores depleted. In other words, you're fasted. Yeah. Um, then later in the day, then come back in um, you know, go ahead and have breakfast, fuel up and get ready for your trainer road experience mm -hmm. and, and do those efforts full, you know, as hard as you can. There's actually been some recent studies about the effectiveness of, of that type of training that both get your, yourself metabolically ready, um, for an event or whatever you're doing. In other words, get your fat burning fired up and yet also work on, you know, your power and, and the things that are going to help you. Uh, do well in a race like your your FTP, which you found out you are doing well. That just matter now. Can you can you fire up your fat burning engine? Get those mitochondria to to really move fat um, through your blood, which is what you want. So it's something I've been I've been getting up in the mornings and um, you know like after this podcast, I'll just jump on the bike before I have a spot of food and go out for two hours. Now you got to stay aerobic. If you try to go hard, you might fall over <laughs> because you got you know there's nothing in the tank at this point. Yeah, but you're trying to force your body to use fat as much as possible for energy. Dude, you're an inspiration. Um. So, and then at night, you know, um, drop the, for dinner. You want to try and and take in only protein and vegetables. Um, no starchy carbs because that just spikes the blood with blood sugar and insulin gets in there and suddenly your body's saying, oh, time to store fat. So a um, couple of little tricks you can play, even if you can't get out and do six-hour rides. You can do little things that emphasize, you know, your ability to to train your body to burn fat. Yeah. And I'm so going to doable. So the 10 p.m. burrito is a bad idea? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that one doesn't really work. Patrick, I think you forwarded around an article this week about alcohol. Yep. And the problems that, that it can cause, and they're significant. I mean, we all like to have a beer afterwards or some wine. I had wine with dinner last night, but you know, yeah. those are the ones that they'll they'll get you. I mean, that those add up quick. 
Well, and that was interesting because, I mean, while I think a lot of people know that um, alcohol is detrimental to training, um, I think people mostly think about it on the front end, uh, not having a beer, you know, before uh, a ride and think they can get away with it, you know, as part of their recovery after a ride. And in Mm -hmm. some ways, that's the most detrimental time to do it uh, because it inhibits uh, protein synthesis. it, uh, you know, it actually hurts recovery, There, you know, any number of things. And so it was, uh, it was a really well-written article uh, from Carmichael Training Systems. Yeah. Glycogen uptake is affected by it. Um, just makes it harder to, to come back from anything. But hey, you know, it's, it's tough. You know, we, we go out and we have, we put down a good effort. You do something like a grasshopper event or Leadville or what, whatever you're doing, uh, something about applying to the elder afterwards tastes awfully good. Um, so, you know, yeah, I think you have to temper, you have to balance that stuff. Reward yourself. Yeah. A piece of chocolate's not going to be the end of the world. A six pack, mm, probably not the best way to, to get ready for the next day's effort, you know? So good. Your FTP is already then fed. Now what happens from here? From here, well, I am in the sustained power build phase of Trainer Road's program, and it goes for six weeks. And essentially, it is uh, a, a focus on building my power in over over the course of time. I'm hoping um, that by the time a month from now I do my next FTP, I would love to see that number jump all the way to 300. So that's my wow. goal. And yeah, uh, I've got a race in uh, early June, uh, the Rockwell. Uh, relay the it, you know the big uh, race we've talked about on this podcast before, and I am hoping to be light by then and have great power by then, and uh, have a really good day on the bike then. Cool, and we're hoping so too. So, yeah. keep up the over unders. Yep, that's your favorite. I think it's your favorite interval, right? The over under. What do what do they call it on Trainer Road? They call them over unders. Yeah, I, I there and there are and there are literally like hundreds, if not thousands, of workouts for Trainer Road. So I don't even you know, and they give each one of them a kind of a fun, clever name. So I, I never know what I'm going to be doing that day until I look at the app. But um, it's it, you know, it, it's a hard workout. I'm rewatching Game of Thrones while we while we do this, and it's uh, you know, it's it's hard work, but uh, a lot of fun. Good, and paying off, so that's great. All right, Fatty's FTP is in. We're all good. We're ready to roll. (laughs) Next on the pace line now, we enter what is called the flow state. And I know what you're thinking. What the hell is flow? We'll find (laughs) out next on the pace line. After you sign up for Trainer Road, the first workout you'll do is a fitness assessment, otherwise known as an FTP test. Based on the results of that test, we scale our library of over 800 workouts to match your current fitness level. The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. Fatty, Patrick Brady, and Michael Houghton here. Fatty, if I say to you, flow... What does that mean to you? If anything at all, flow, you're in the flow state. What does that mean to you? Flow state. Um, I would say the first thing that comes to mind when you say flow would be a particular trail on Corner Canyon, which is where I normally ride. 
uh, called Rush, uh, so named because the guy who created the trail was a big fan of the band Rush. It's a flow trail, um, where the idea being that you uh, that it's nicely banked, has it is sort of fast but really flowy. Uh, you it it is a downhill only, so you don't have to watch for people coming up, and you can just kind of get into the groove. Mm-hmm. How's yeah, that? So you make a yeah, yeah, that's perfect. Actually, that's fine. You make a direct association with an experience or a place when the word flow comes up, and that's I think mountain bikers would would share that with you. It's a flowy trail. It really flowed nicely. Mm-hmm. But there's actually a little something deeper here. Flow is this psychological thing that's pretty incredible. The first time I heard of flow, I was with Patrick at Interbike, and we were talking to a company that makes body armor and about the guts it takes to do to be really extreme on the bike, like Red Bull Rampage and those guys, or to test the limits of any sport for that matter, big wave surfing, skateboarding, cliff jumping. And Patrick at the time mentioned a book called The Rise of Superman by Stephen Kotler. I was intrigued. I bought it, but uh, I have actually struggled to get through it. It's very well researched. There's some interesting stories, but for some reason, I failed to make the the connection between flow state and my state or my state of mind. So first, Patrick, thanks for taking up this topic. For the listeners of The Pace Line, you should know that Patrick has a feature article in the current edition of Bicycling Magazine, and it is on this thing called flow which we're going to talk about in depth here right now and at first i was kind of amazed patrick that bicycling would publish this article on this topic because it's very heady it's very deep but you know considering who's running bicycling now bill strickland Mm -hmm. uh i thought about it again and went you know what no this this fits based on what i've heard about bill fatty did a great interview with bill strickland about how he's directing the magazine now it does make sense and i'm glad and I want to thank Bicycling and give them a big thumbs up for going ahead and putting this on the pages of their magazine. Mine just hit my mailbox, I think, uh, last week. It should be out there right now. But before we venture off, Patrick, into mm-hmm. the editorial decisions that were made to get this article on into Bicycling, <laughs> let's discuss flow. Let's get a little flow education from you because you've spent a lot of time looking into this. Yeah. What is flow and how do we know if we are in it? Okay, so the term flow state comes from uh, a Czech-born psychologist, uh, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, and he wrote a book uh, called Flow, in which he defined what he called the flow state. And, you know, we know this thing by a number of names, you know, being in the zone is one of them. Uh, you know, it, it's it's that special headspace that we get into where we're at just optimal performance um, you know, and we, we feel supreme confidence in our ability in the face of, you know, pretty significant challenge. Uh, and one of the things that we know about flow is that as, uh, as our ability increases, uh, the, uh, what's required to reach flow is a greater challenge. Um, so it's, it's a meeting of, of two conditions, uh, great ability, great challenge, uh, what wasn't known for a number of years and came out through uh, Stephen Kotler's research uh, for his book, West of Jesus, is the neuroscience behind it. So for a great many years, this was just kind of a cutesy pop psych term. You know, oh, yeah, dude, I was in flow. Um, what we know now is that this isn't just, you know, something we like to talk about. Um, it's an altered state of consciousness. And 
the the neuroscience uh, behind this has been tracked uh, pretty thoroughly, and there's still more research being done. Uh, there's also a thing called a group flow state, and there's more research on the neuroscience of that that's still undergoing. But the basics of flow uh, for anyone uh, it leads with uh, norepinephrine. So this is when you have that experience of time slowing down. Uh, norepinephrine, uh, so it's a stimulant, okay? Um, speed, amphetamines, uh, plug into the same receptors in our brain that norepinephrine does, okay? And what this does is it makes you uh, more able to process information. Uh, you, you can simply deal with more information as it comes in uh, because it sharpens your focus. Um, there's also dopamine, um, and dopamine is that amazing feeling you get, um, well, uh, after orgasm or during orgasm. Uh, it's, you know, the same, uh, the, the same receptor that takes dopamine also accepts cocaine. Um, then we've got endorphins, you know, everybody talks about runner's high. Well, there's a lot more to runner's high, uh, than just endorphins. And I, I've come to believe that, uh, runner's high is just another term for, uh, flow state. Uh, the receptors that accept endorphins also take morphine, um, uh, or, you know, other narcotics of that family. Um, so we're wired for this stuff. And then there are uh, two other components. Uh, one is anandamide. Um, and anandamide, uh, the receptor that accepts uh, that, also takes THC, uh, which people may know from marijuana. And uh, then finally, there's also serotonin. And the interesting thing about serotonin is the research that led to the discovery of that um, was first conducted by Albert Hoffman, uh, a chemist for Sandoz Laboratories in Switzerland. And Hoffman is known as the father of LSD, um, and he's also credited with the first uh, high bicycle ride. Um, maybe not a selling point for a lot of us. Um, uh, so there are five components in terms of the neuroscience of flow. And uh, put together... Um, what results is uh, something that's so amazing that you're willing to do it again without being paid. Um, the word for that is autotelic. You know, you've just had an experience so amazing that you don't need anyone else to coax you into doing that again. That's how we get the dirtbag climber, the soul surfer, you know, the, um, the itinerant bike racer, um, you know, these, these experiences are what give meaning to life for anyone and everyone. How, how does one know if they've entered the flow state? Because obviously we cannot extract these chemicals from our brain and test them and go, yeah, look, I was in flow. What on an anecdotal level indicates that, man, you were just in flow? Um, the big smile and then going, OMG, dude. That's... That's very <laughs> clinical. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, no one else can tell you when you feel amazing. Um, and, you know, flow, it, it exists along a continuum. 
You know, there's low state, uh, there's kind of low intensity flow, there's high intensity flow. You know, the, the more high risk you get into, the more intense the flow state, uh, the more altered your consciousness. But truly, I mean, it's something that, you know, when you have a, a cook in a kitchen who's, you know, juggling a bunch of different uh, dishes and getting them all out on time, and they, you know, they feel like they've just got everything wired, and they get to the end of a day and they're tired, but they're satisfied and pleased and feel good about themselves and their work. Dude, that was flow. Mm-hmm. And those so, resulting chemicals you talked about, I mean, they sound like narcotics, are they? I mean, they sound addictive. Uh, well, yeah. And so we often talk about the dark side of flow. I don't get into that in the bicycling feature, but yeah, it's well known there's a dark side to flow. Uh, and you see a high incidence of you know drug abuse and addiction uh, among uh, fallen extreme athletes um, and other people who've kind of, you know, tread those waters, so to speak. Um, yeah, there's, there's definitely some risk, uh, that, you know, if you can't get it by one means, you'll go find another means to get it. Hmm. Do you think Patty, that, now that you've heard the definition, do, have you ever, can you recall moments when you were in a flow state? Oh, absolutely. I, I was actually wondering as I was thinking about what you were saying, Patrick, whether there is a difference between flow state for road cycling versus mountain biking because i think there is for me the the perfect moments on a road ride are when i I only realize when i snap out of them where i uh, suddenly become normally aware again of my surroundings and realize that miles have elapsed and I've gone into what I've always called sort of a Zen state where mm-hmm. I'm like, wow, I was really going and I was in some sort of state where I wasn't necessarily aware of the world as I normally am, but I come out with a perfect sense of well-being and a love of what I'm doing. Mountain biking, I get more of that slow, you know, the a slowing of the universe while I am at my normal pace and I'm observing more and feeling more and I am able to uh, descend better perhaps than I normally would. And that is a hyper aware state. So it's almost at two different ends of the spectrum as far as what I've experienced on the road. It's almost sort of like a, a stopping of the world Whereas in mountain biking, it's more of a hyper perception of the world. Do you guys get that? Absolutely. Yeah. And you, you've noted, you know, perfectly, you know, some of the differences um, kind of qualitatively in that experience, you know. So, I mean, I've and I've certainly experienced both of those myself. What I would say is that, you know, in a road ride, when you have that sort of experience, um, you know, it's a it's a lower intensity flow state. The challenge is not as high. Um, but the challenge is still there. And one of the other classic signals of, um, of a flow state is that the forebrain shuts off. You know, your prefrontal mm-hmm. cortex basically just turns off yeah. and, and the eye disappears. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that is the me. Uh, that yeah. just shuts down and you're not really thinking about who you are or the shopping list anymore. But then, you know, as, uh, as risk and consequence increase, uh, the sharpness of that focus needs to increase. And so, yeah, say on a, a flow trail, you know, in a descent, um, you're, you know, from moment to moment, you're in a much more high consequence circumstance. 
And so your focus needs to be much sharper. The upshot is that you're probably not going to be in flow as long during that descent because it's, you know, it's not like having, you know, 40 miles elapse on a, a Grand Fondo or something. And so, yeah, it'll be, it'll be shorter, but more intense. Uh, but they're, you know, they're both still flow. Michael, my struggle is that is, is allowing my brain to shut down if that can be done. I, I don't know that it can. My, my issue is I, I look at risk and my, my frontal vortex, the front part of my brain stays engaged and it doesn't want to let go and just let things happen. I, 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 that part I have deduced out of the readings I've done from Patrick's article and from Kotler's book is that I, my conscious just stays too alive and I stay too hmm. locked in. I grip too tight. Um, to allow flow to really happen. so Maybe you need I, to try a different kind of riding, man. I, I just might. Um, <laughs> I, no, I, I notice that I snap into it in different circumstances, and I'm, I, I guess I've been riding long enough that I have a pretty good sense of what is going to put me into this wonderful state. This, you know, that I, you know, for me, a lot of the time it is in very intense climbing situations where, you know, a lot of people are really, you know, just feeling horrible. For me, uh, the focus, the intensity, and the rhythm of a really tough climb, um, I will disappear into it. And I, I love the way you phrase it, you, where your eye, you know, the the sense of, what, is it id? <laughs> Disappears. Yeah. And you are, um, and, and you are nothing but legs and lungs and afterward you know you become aware it's like wow well i'm i'm super cooked but i also feel just amazing in my head um on the mountain bike for me you know super duper technical stuff doesn't do it for me i just feel afraid but smooth fast flowy stuff that i'm generally most familiar with things that trails that i've done many times and am and and am comfortable with uh, that's when I will become, you know, hyper aware of, you know, how long I'm in the air, uh, how the landing feels when I stick it perfectly, things like that, uh, you know, with, with jumps that I just know that's when I sort of enter the mountain bike equivalent of that. So, yeah, I'm looking yeah, forward the- to reading this. Yeah. Well, here's one of the great things I learned from the article too. And from talking to Patrick about this topic is that endurance athletes can do flow. Flow was not reserved for those who pull off the extreme. You know, the Danny McCaskills or Tony Hawks. Patrick, you referenced a Yuri Hoswald, who you ran into over the weekend in your piece, and his incredible effort at Dirty Kanza last summer. Kanza. Kanza? Kanza. Kanza. I'll get it right. Uh, Fatty talked to Yuri about that day, and flow came up during their conversation. This is from one of your first Fatty Cast, Fatty, and we pick it up as Yuri is describing the last quarter of the race. He has just learned that after a day of mud and walking and wandering, he is in second place. So it's this roller coastery stretch, and where you can see the road, it just goes to the horizon, and you can see it, you know, for days. And year prior, that had really worn me down mentally, and this year, I didn't let it get to me. Um, and I just turned up my music in my iPod and got in my happy power zone where you know my coach and I had been working a lot and stayed there and just became the diesel engine and just went. And uh, 
maybe 10, 15 miles into that section, one of the photographers who'd been following me all day was like, hey, mm -hmm. first place is only 10 minutes up on you. And wow. even that didn't really like light the fire is like 10 minutes and then I only have 35 miles to go. Like, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to catch him, but you know, I'm going to continue at this steady pace and see what happens. And at that point we were coming upon the hundred milers cause the course overlaps. And, uh, so I wasn't, you know, I wasn't totally sure who I was, I mean, passing or not, you know, yeah. and you're coming up on random riders. So <laughs> with about three, three miles to go, I see, I, you know, off in the distance, I see a figure who looks a tad different possibly than some of the other riders that I had been passing. Mm -hmm. And I did notice that I was making up ground on him pretty quickly. I could just tell by how quickly the gap was closing and rolled up on him and uh, looked at his number plate and looked at him. And I was like, you're the 200 leader, right? And he was like, yep. And I was like, how's it going? <laughs> and he, he was not pleased um, that I had caught him. And so I um, decided just to, to give it a little bit of gas to see yeah. where he was at. And he immediately got on my wheel. Sure. Sat on my wheel like most people would do for sure. But um, after taking my fair share of a pull, and you know, I gave him the elbow, the flick to come around and he wouldn't come around. Mm -hmm. So I then, yeah, <laughs> yeah, smart, I guess, right? But he was no but, fool. Uh, yeah, true. <laughs> so then I, I sat up and pulled way to the left and just, I looked at him and I said, I'm not going to give you a free toe to town. That's not how it's going to work. Mm -hmm. He responded with something a tad snarky. And I was like, well, then we're going to ride side by side. Um, cause I'm not going to pull you into right. town. And so we rode into town together, and I know I know the finish super well. And uh, we hit a small rise going into campus, and I tried to gas him there. Got a little bit of a gap, <laughs> but he but he brought me back right at the top of the boulevard um, as you go into the three block finishing shoot. And um, I don't know what came over me. It wasn't like a it wasn't like a conscious thing. I don't remember having, you know, a thought like, okay, I got to sprint this guy right now. Yeah. I just went into sort of this like flow state primal thing where I just decided to lead it out. Didn't even give it a second thought from the very top of the boulevard. I was going to lay everything out that I had. Mm -hmm. And, um, and this goes back to my coach, you know, coaching me and having me do, some sprint and interval type workouts because just in case there was a scenario like this, because uh, wow. I'm not a sprinter. Um, and I nearly hit a thousand Watts at the top of the boulevard <laughs> as we were, as we were coming in and, um, was able to hold him off for, for a three block, you know, two person sprint. I think he chose incredible. I he, yeah. I think he started out on my left side. And as you know, um, it, it funnels into a chute, and so he may have been pinched on my left side. I don't know because mm -hmm. I never looked back. And right. maybe had tried to swing around behind me to come right. Mm -hmm. I don't know. But um, I basically held him off by a bike length, and um, when I crossed the finish line, I let out, like, and I'm a pretty quiet, reserved guy, and I rarely win races, so it's not like I'm pounding my chest and, you know, doing some sign um, or anything like that that a lot of people <laughs> do. But I let out. I didn't know this until I saw videos, but I let out like this primal scream um, and had this just like look of disbelief on my face and then completely collapsed wow. when, I, when I crossed the line. 
um, and my wife was there, and uh, Leland, one of the promoters, was there, and he was the first person I hugged, and he was in tears, and uh, <laughs> it was an amazing, amazing finish, man. Is I mean, I get goosebumps right now still talking about it. So that was Yuri Hoswald, the winner of the Dirty Kanza uh, last year, talking about you know how the race kind of ended, and I think you caught there, guys, or he talked about that moment when mm-hmm. he went on the attack to win the sprint where he he just acted. He really didn't know what he was doing. He just went with all that had been built before then and and let it just happen. Patrick, that sounded like a quintessential example of flow and how it can happen. Well, I'd say it was a quintessential example for the endurance athlete. Uh, and one of the things that I've been chasing in the course of my work and my, you know, my reading about flow and the research that's being done uh, is that this seems to be uh, an evolutionary adaptation that in order to run down uh, the beast that we were going to have for dinner, we needed to be getting some rewards along the way. Uh, and so, you know, the, the runner who could stick with it the longest to run down the wildebeest or the rhinoceros or whatever it was, saber tooth tiger, um, you know, we had to stay on it. We know now that we're built for running and that we were built to be hunters, uh, and that, you know, we would, we would chase prey The you know, thousands of years ago, we would simply run down the prey until they couldn't take it anymore. And then they'd fall over and we'd get them. And flow was our way to stay in the game because this could take hours. And if you weren't, you know, if there wasn't some sort of reward system uh, keeping you in the hunt, quite literally, uh, you weren't going to eat. And so this was an evolutionary adaptation uh, to make us better at hunting. Uh, the norepinephrine attunes you uh, to movement. And so, you know, you're watching the horizon, looking for, you know, what your next meal is. Uh, it's things like that. You know, the dopamine. Or the next rider, as Yuri was looking down that Bingo. Kansas road. Bingo. He was looking for that next meal or next next <laughs> competitor. Yeah. In a detract- and so to, that's why I guess you wrote that entering flow is not this adrenaline thing. In fact, adrenaline can be a, a flow killer. It really starts in this this area of what we would know better as zone three. That's where it kind of comes to us. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. That's the crazy part is that, you know, now when I look at the typical group ride, which, you know, powers around for 25, 35 miles in zone three, and every coach on the planet is busy ripping his hair out, unless he's shaved it all off like fatty, uh, you know, these guys are going, don't ride in zone three. You know, if it's a, if it's a recovery ride, zone one, zone two, uh, or if you're really training, you know, it's zone four, zone five, you know, do the work. Don't just ride around pretty hard. Well, what we now know is that the group ride that rides around in zone three is just busy handing out Prozac to everyone. Uh, this is everyone's sanity. This is what makes you feel good. Um, that's where the satisfaction is, is that, you know, you're most likely to enter, uh, at least from an endurance athlete standpoint, I should clarify that, you're most likely to enter flow between 60 and 80% of maximum heart rate. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess then we're saying that flow doesn't equal improved fitness. It it may equal a peace of mind or a place you really want to visit a lot. You still got to do your work. In fact, that might help you to achieve flow if you've done work like Yuri had done. Um, but it's not the place where you're going to become a sprinter 
Flow, flow state's not. No, no. And I think it's important to note that, you know, it's it's not impossible to enter flow, you know, as as Yuri's story points out. It's not impossible to enter flow uh, in those higher heart rate ranges. I've certainly had those experiences where, you know, I've I've often joked on a cl- that on a climb I went so hard I couldn't have told you my name, um, and you know, kind of deconstructing that experience afterward, I realized, oh yeah, that was flow. I didn't understand it at the time, but you know, yeah, that I went away, and uh, I you know finished that experience, you know, just utterly exhilarated. So let's go over just before we let folks go on flow. The, the keys to kind of getting into flow. And this is what I drew from your article. To enter flow, here are the kind of the keys you look for. You need the optimal ratio of challenge to skill. And I guess, Patrick, that can vary from person to person. Well, when One you- person's challenge may not be another person's uh, based on their skill level. So Yeah, it's completely I, relative. Who's a, yeah, so, so somebody who's a beginning cyclist can find flow if their challenge, if that ratio is proper. So challenge to skill ratio is important to, to getting into flow. You need a, that partial brain shutdown that you talked about, right? I mean, almost. okay, that's not a condition for flow. That's something that emerges with flow. Um, you know, the big thing here is you're, what you're trying to do is match challenge with ability. And so earlier when you were talking about, you know, you see certain circumstances in mountain biking, you're like, ah, that's not really doing it for me. You know, I take that as an automatic uh, indication that you're looking at something that's more difficult than you're comfortable with. So, you know, what happens is, you know, when you're trying to chase flow, if you're in a situation where the challenge is too great, you end up anxious and you're not going to get into flow that way. Um, if okay. the challenge isn't great enough, you're going to end up bored. You know, think checkers. You know, it's like okay, whatever. This doesn't really demand much of me. Right. Um, which gets us. Which gets us to you need novelty or uniqueness in your challenge. If it's the same thing over and over again, no flow. Right. Uh, you know, but that novelty can arrive in a bunch of different ways. So, like, you can go down. Uh, you can go down rush, like Fatty, Fatty was talking about. Um, and you can do that a dozen times and suddenly it's going to start to become sort of routine. But if typically your average speed has been say 14 miles an hour down that trail and suddenly you go in and you hit it hotter and you average 15 miles an hour, guess what? Flow. All right. Then you need a clear set of goals Yep. and rules to gauge progress. It's kind of the feedback element here, right? And, exactly. And you need that immediate feedback. You need that satisfaction. To, to let you know, yeah, that that just happened. And again, that's that's emergent. The the rules, uh, the rules thing, uh, the you know, kind of knowing the boundaries of what the experience is. Um, a lot of people will will read that and kind of think, oh, baseball, football. No, no, no. It's it's that you need this feedback loop to know how you're doing. That's why video games can be so addictive. You know, if if the uh, the monster kills you. You didn't do so great, but if you slay the monster, you're doing all right. And so you've got this very immediate feedback loop letting you know how you're doing. You know, if you're in the air and land it perfectly, you did just fine. You know, if you end up on your shoulder, um, <laughs> y- you weren't so great. Fatty, how are you feeling now? Are you feeling in the flow? Oh. Feeling it? Oh, yeah. We're in podcast flow. 
<laughs> <laughs> well, Patrick and I discussed flow too. It goes beyond sport, right, Patrick? I mean, flow, and let's we'll wrap up with this. Flow can take over in a a lot of aspects of your life, not just on a bicycle, or not if you're jumping off a cliff, or pulling off a, a, a trick in a half pipe. It can happen when you're writing, or when you're, I mean, writing, yeah, or doing a podcast, or what have you. I'm I'm an avowed flow junkie. I mean, I simply. I, I basically in my life try to chase flow as often as possible. And one of the things we know from research is the more flow you get, the more flow you get. So hacking flow is a, you know, for those who are attuned to it, um, that's, you know, pretty much a daily pursuit. And as a writer, uh, that's where I try to live. Awesome. Flow state, get into the flow. And to do that, you want to check out uh, the latest edition of Bicycling Magazine, or just start firing off questions at Patrick because he's in a constant flow state with that stuff. <laughs> He'll be happy to answer your questions about flow. Really fascinating stuff, Patrick. Excellent article, excellent piece. We want to thank Bicycling Magazine, I think, again for for publishing it. Very yeah, cool big to put that on the page. A big shout out to Strickland for being interested, and then also to my editor Gloria Liu. Uh, working with her was a real treat. They yeah. did a great job with this. And very creative um, photos because it's you know it's not a thing where you go out and take a picture of a bike or take a picture of a of a climb. They did some interesting stuff with the graphics and photos, and there's some other tips in there about flow that that are worth reading up on too. All right, coming up, we relive the moment we learned to ride. That's next on the pace line. The pace line, still feeling the flow, getting into it now. Um, Patrick Brady, Fatty, Michael Houghton here. Hey guys, British cycling with a real mess on its hands with less than 100 days until the Olympics in Rio. Shane Sutton, the technical director for the national team, quit after several women came forward and leveled claims of sexism and harassment. It started with track sprinter Jess Varnish, who claimed Sutton presided over a culture of fear at British Cycling. He routinely made, this is her claim, sexist remarks towards female athletes. And that's when she asked him why her contract with British Cycling was not being renewed. He had told her to move on and get on with having a baby. Uh, Sutton denied saying that and said uh, Varnish was not picked for the Olympic squad for performance reasons. Then Nicole Cook and Victoria Pendleton, two of the most high-profile female riders for British Cycling, voiced their support for Varnish, alleging institutional sexism and describing a culture of fear within the elite programs. Three riders then went on to tell The Guardian that Sutton called women bitches and Sheilas and once referred to a non-white rider as a dirty terrorist when he turned up with, a, um, with stubble on his face at a race. Sutton was hanging on by a thread when uh, then Paralympic gold medalist Darren Kenny came out with a story alleging that Sutton referred to paracyclists as gimps and wobblies. Sutton was suspended and then he quit. British Cycling has also been accused of hawking equipment provided to it by its funding body, UK Sports. This 
Patrick, is a long ways from the London Games. <laughs> As British cycling was entering that era in prime form, what in the heck is going on? And can they even recover this program in time for Rio? Well, I, yeah, it, such a disruption in coaching will be pretty interesting. Uh, the funny thing is the the just massive uh, miscalculation of going after Varnish uh, the way they did when she came out with her allegations. They went after her pretty hard. And it is to the credit of the other women uh, on the team who came forward and said, whoa, 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 you can't you can't do that to her. She's telling the truth. Um, it's a real uh, credit to them for speaking up on behalf of their former teammate. Uh, I think that shows a lot of character. Um, it's just kind of astounding just how pig-headed uh, Sutton was. Um, you know, you don't ever hear this stuff until something really blows up. Uh, as as for their coaching, I don't know. Yeah. Good program, too, man. They've been racing well since, you know, they've kind of put new energy into British cycling in the, you know, early, what was the early 2000s? Yeah. Really decided to take that program forward. And in things, they won a tour. You know, actually, Bradley Wiggins became a superstar in the country, and British cycling was, was part of that. Their track program is excellent. And now, mm, boy, that's a tough one. And then add to that the Simon Yates issue. Now, Simon's a Brady, rides for an Aussie team, Team Orica. He tested positive for a banned substance. The substance was a drug for asthma. Orica is taking the blame for not uh, obtaining an exemption. And the UCI says it will let Yates at his ride while it gets this all figured out. But, Patrick, another huge mistake here um, involving a British rider on an Aussie team, but a real mess. These, these guys are allowed to take asthma medications. Just They need to take the right ones. Well, I don't. You know, yeah, okay, if you've got exercise-induced asthma, you need medication. I've been there. I've suffered that. Um, but the problem I have with this isn't just that the team's to- team doctor was too stupid to get the TUE. It's why did he have to go and prescribe the one asthma medication that has been shown clinically to elevate your power? Okay, why did they choose that one? If this is such a clean operation... You know, why are they choosing that asthma medication as opposed to one of the other ones that has been around for ages, like albuterol? Right. Well, Orca is trying to run interference and, you know, save Simon's career or at least you know, preserve it for the rest of the year. Uh, Femke Vandendriesch, a woman we talked about here on the pace line, who was caught, and the first to be caught, in fact, with a motor in her bike at UCI uh, Cyclocross Worlds, has been given her uh, suspension and fine by the UCI. She will serve six years, a $20,000 fine. That's not a lifetime ban, which she could have gotten. She was also stripped of uh, four results, including the U23 Belgian and European titles. So the suspension actually looks back to October of last year, which means the UCI may have evidence that she was using a motor prior to um, Cyclocross Worlds in January. And the report's not out yet, but there are rumors that there could have been other people involved in the, the motor cheating scandal, which means they too could either face suspensions or fines. Hey, good to see John Degenkolb back racing over the weekend. He entered a small event in Frankfurt, Germany. It was a DNF, but for last year's uh, Perry Roubaix winner, but he's come a long way since being run over by a car along with five giant Alpecin teammates during a training ride. So good to see the German back racing again. Uh, something I've been wanting to incorporate here in the pace line for a while now, and that's the Friday group ride by Robot. It's a weekly column that appears on redkiteprayer.com. 
neat stuff that he uh, robot always writes um, and really poses a question at the end of each piece um, to the readers and asks for input. And I thought this week's was particularly good for the pace line, for the three of us guys to talk about. A robot wrote about learning to ride, the person who taught you how to ride and where and when it happened. For Robot, it was his father trying to teach him how to ride and they had some trial and error at home uh, trying to get him up on two wheels. He said in the end he was uh, on a family vacation in Wales and got on a bike that was there at the, at the home of, I think, an uncle or something like that. And alone, he straddled the bike on a driveway, a pretty steep one, and picked up his feet and rolled down that driveway. And he then and there had figured out how to ride. Now, he does credit, even though his father wasn't by his side when the moment happened, he does credit his father with teaching him how to ride his bike because it was his father who really put in the time and the effort to get him moving on a bicycle. So, Robot asked, or had asked, Friday, on the group ride, who taught you to ride? How do they do it? Where? And have you paid it forward? Have you taught anybody else to ride? So, let's start with Fatty. Fatty, where and when did you learn to ride, and have you paid it forward? Well, I'm going to approach it from a slightly different angle um, because I, yeah, I have no recollection of learning to ride. Um, it's sort of like I don't remember uh, learning to read. It's just something that has always been part of me. But I do remember when I learned to ride as an adult. That is, um, I was a committed rollerblader um, and would rollerblade about 20 miles per day. Uh, to work and back home from work and a good friend of mine said hey you got to try mountain biking and he took me on a trail and it took exactly one ride and I said I am selling my car and in fact did I, I was a sports car guy I sold my car and I, I've been hooked ever since and this guy uh, his name's Doug, but we he is affectionately known by a lot of riders in the area as the shepherd because he has this unique ability to get people completely hooked on mountain biking. I am not the only guy in the area who rides because of Doug. Um, he is a guy who is uh, incredibly sarcastic in most ways, but also very patient in the important ways in getting people to ride and have a great time. Have I paid it forward? I don't know. I mean, I guess my blog maybe pays it forward a little bit. I, I get email from a lot of people who uh, were overweight, uh, but found my blog, you know, fat cyclist and said, Hey, I'm going to get my, I'm going to get out the old bike and start riding. So I don't know if I paid it forward in a personal way so much as in an electronic way. There are a few people who ride because, uh, because of what I've written. No, uh, I'd say you, pa no, you pass the class. You, you score one there. That's absolutely right. a legitimate way to pay it forward. And something that robot didn't specifically spell out in his, in his piece, like, you know, did you put your hands on someone and, and hold them up as they rode? But if you get somebody on a bicycle, that's, I think that's supremely important. That counts. That counts, yeah. right? I, I, Good. I, I, it, it, because of me, I think there's around 5,000 girls in Africa who have bikes now. Does that count? Um, yes. About 5,000 <laughs> times. You have paid it forward times 5,000. All right. Patrick Brady, I, I, this one is going to be interesting, I think. 
How did you learn to ride? Where was it? And pay it forward. You you may get a pass on this because we all know that the two guys running around the house are gonna. They're already on their way with riding. But <laughs> let us know how you learned to ride. How did it happen? Oh, you know, it was the the classic thing. You know, my my mom uh, took me to this hippie bike shop and bought me a Raleigh chopper. So it was Raleigh's answer uh, to the, uh, to the apple crate and all those. Um, and, uh, my dad would take me out on the sidewalk in front of our house and it was a, a flat stretch of sidewalk and, uh, he would hold the, the sissy bar in back, they called it. And mm-hmm. he would hold that and hold me upright and we'd walk along and pedal. It didn't have any training wheels on it. And, uh, then one day a friend of the family was out with me. Uh, I wanted to show her, and I started pedaling really hard. My dad would always just kind of trot along behind me while I pedaled faster. Uh, what I didn't know was that this friend of the family, uh, I don't know, maybe she was in heels or something, but she did not elect to trot along behind me and let go. And pretty soon I was pedaling on my own. When I called to her, I could tell she was 50 feet behind me and she said she wasn't holding on. Um, fortunately, I managed to ride off into the grass and jump off the bike without getting hurt. But that was that was the the turning point for me. But my dad gets the credit. Uh, he was the one who kept taking me out and riding me up and down the sidewalk. Yeah. Right. And obviously you are paying it forward now, teaching two sons to ride. And like Fatty, your website, uh, RKP, you've written, you wrote a book um, that I was photographed for too. It's called... Nope. The No Drop uh, Zone. Escapes. The No Drop Zone. Sorry about that. Uh, where it discusses in, you know more common, easy-to-understand terms, how to be part of group rides, how to ride, how to do basic things on the bicycle. So you, too, get credit for paying it forward. <laughs> well, what I'm, what I'm proudest of are, are the boys. And I really I don't look at it as having taught them anything. Um, I watch their interest. I provide them with the proper tool as the interest arises. So, you know, Phillips moved on to 20 inch wheels bikes after having started with 12 inch wheels. And, uh, Matthew is on a tricycle right now and he is crazy about his tricycle. He refers to it as the red bike. Um, Mm -hmm. he'll, he'll get out of the car, um, come running over to me if I'm doing bike work in front of the garage and, and look up me and say, red bike, daddy, red bike. Oh, yeah, it's pretty. Uh, you and I share uh, have one thing in common regarding learning to ride, and that is Raleigh. My first yeah. bike was a Raleigh, a Christmas present. I think it was nineteen sixty nine. Okay, uh, my family had just moved to California from Seattle, and bikes were going to be part of the scene because in Seattle it was soggy and wet, and getting out and riding as a family was difficult. Now I had two sisters, so my folks got two three speeds and put those little seats on the back, and my sisters would. One would ride with my mother and one would be my father. That left me. I needed to be able to propel myself on my own. So they got me a bicycle for Christmas. And I'll never forget, we were living in Palo Alto. My father took me out to the street. I straddled that Raleigh. And he said, okay, it's pretty easy, son. All you do is just get going and the bike will stay up. And you just keep pedaling. Just keep this thing moving. You'll be fine. We didn't talk about stopping or (laughs) putting a foot down or anything. And no, there were no training wheels. He shoved me off and sent me on my way, and I probably made it 100 feet, 150 feet, and I suffered my first crash. 
Um, <laughs> down I went. Uh, I remember I scra- I, I remember to this day too. Probably I was five years old or no, uh, yeah, five years old. I remember scraping the bars. I don't even remember if I scraped myself. I remember scraping the handlebars and being deeply upset by that. <laughs> and I also remember a neighbor, a friend of mine. He had he had a similar Raleigh, but they uh, and he was in in the similar position I was, just learning to ride. But his had training wheels. So after a few failed attempts, my, my father relented and he did get me training wheels and we popped them on and, and I probably spent, you know, a, a good month or so with the training wheels on. And then one day we just decided, he and I said, let's, let's take them off and see what happens. And we went back out to that same court, same street uh, there in Palo Alto. And I got on and he gave me a little push and I was off and running. And I don't even remember if I, I know I rode around. I remember riding up and down our street, back and forth, and he watched me as, as I made several passes by him, and he was quite proud. And I was, I I learned was the first learn the first time I I think I experienced independence, which is what the bicycle can really bring you. Mm-hmm. Is. Yeah, it, it gives you that. It's that first shot at you know before you ever have a car, before you ever get a hall pass, you would get a bicycle, and you learn that hey, I can get out on my own and propel myself. Um, paying it forward is a tougher one for me. Um, I am childless, don't have kids. Um, I have worked extensively with my wife on becoming a regular cyclist. And it was one of the things I did as when I became more involved in this sport was I said, you know what, I'm going to make sure she is involved too. Um, so I, along the way, I didn't teach her to ride, but I've encouraged her to keep riding. I've tried to make sure that she's equipped and um, that she um, planned some rides. And we, we ride together. We rode together yesterday, in fact. And I try to make those rides about her whenever possible. So that's how, at least for now, I'm trying to pay it forward. And that's my story of where and how I learned to ride and continue to ride. Cool. Excellent, guys. We should make this a regular thing. I, I like this. Little, a little question of the day. I like it. A little... Yeah, a little philosophical stuff from the pace line. Hmm. And we were a very heady show today, right? We had flow. Yeah, we did the FTP test. We had flow, deep psychological stuff, a little philosophical, a little flashback material. I love that about the pace line. We can be all. <laughs> all right, guys, uh, let's wrap things up. Uh, first of all, we're going to check in with Fatty, the Fatty cast in full effect, and fatcyclist.com. What's going on there, Fatty? I, well, I am still doing my write-up of the six hours in frog hollow as anyone who reads my blog knows i do tend to go into excruciating detail on the fatty cast um i will be uh posting a interview with eben weiss aka bike snob new york city about his new book the ultimate bicycle owner's manual awesome looking forward to that i'm getting starting to get caught up on my fatty cast but still i think one or two episodes behind Patrick Brady, redkiteprayer.com. Obviously, again, folks, check out Bicycling Magazine. Go get an issue if you're not a subscriber. Patrick's right in there. It's a, it's a major issue for them, too, by the way. Patrick, you should get some good exposure because I think this is their uh, their editor's choice yeah. issue. Edit- the editor's bikes. choice awards. I mean, yeah. I, you know, the ultimate would have been to have you on the cover. <laughs> and, um, I, you know, but the editor's choice is obviously a big deal for them. They do, you are mentioned on the, on the cover. The Science of Stoke is the name of the article. Page 28 is where you find it. What else uh, besides flow state are you into 
for RKP? <laughs> well, uh, the complete opposite end of the spectrum. Uh, I've got a Yuba Cycles uh, Spicy Curry. This is uh, um, one of their electric assist uh, cargo bikes that can does a pretty good job of carrying kids. And so I did a little ride yesterday uh, with Philip and Matthew uh, checking that thing out. And so I'll be uh, riding one of those over the next couple weeks, uh, making runs with kids and getting groceries and whatnot uh, for the purpose of a review. And more video. The video was just awesome. <laughs> I love that. Okay. Um, I am uh, again, Michael Houghton. Of course you can find me as well on uh, the pages of red kite prayer with uh, various reviews or maybe a, a race report once in a while. And of course the pace line, this podcast is found on RKP. So go there if you want to get some, uh, show links or some notes about the show, or if you're an iTunes person, Stitcher, uh, Google play music. We're now also there. So all those places you can find the pace line and please leave your comments, rate us whenever you can. We really appreciate it. it does help. And we love hearing your, again, comment on the show, especially at RKP. We'll be happy to take up some of the things you might uh, want to say about us or about the show. So for fatty and Patrick Brady, I'm Michael Houghton. We'll talk to you next time on The Pace Line. We call this experience flow because the sensation conferred is that every action, every decision leads seamlessly, fluidly to the next. It's technically defined as a state of consciousness where we feel our best and we perform our best. 